This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One thing that we don't have a shortage of is knowledge. Knowledge is ubiquitous. Uh, Pretty much anything you want to know, all you have to do is go to a search engine and look up the the topic, look up the issue. If there's something that you're not sure about, you can just check. uh, You can check on Google and figure it out. I love it because I love uh, knowledge. I love information. I love fast facts. Uh, sometimes people can start throwing out random information and we can check it right on the fly. We don't suffer from a lack of knowledge. Uh, it's super easy to know anything that we want to know. The problem is that we often confuse and conflate knowledge with wisdom. Knowledge does not equal wisdom. We as a people know more than any other people have ever known. And by that, I just mean we have access to more accurate information than any other people the earth has ever known. So so what is the big difference and why does that matter? Knowledge is one thing, wisdom is another. I heard somebody put it this way. I I saw that someone said, knowledge uh, helps you with trivial pursuit. Wisdom helps you avoid trivial pursuits. There is a big difference between knowledge and between wisdom. Most would say that a lot of what we call wisdom, though, is uh, is nothing like God's wisdom. In many ways, you could say that God's wisdom is the wisdom we should aspire to, and kind of earthly wisdom is a counterfeit wisdom, a counterfeit wisdom, wisdom that really doesn't uh, hit the target, a wisdom that doesn't accomplish what we think it accomplishes. Consider uh, these differences and start thinking to yourself, what is it that I would say makes me wise if I consider myself wise? It's important because we need to know the difference between authentic, godly wisdom and counterfeit, false, or fake wisdom. A better way to think about this is to use the term counterfeit with something much more familiar, uh, and that is money. We understand money itself is a valuable commodity, right? It's fungible, it's tradable, it's something that we're able to use uh, to be able to acquire things that we need. Money's important. The Bible says that money answers all things. So a lot of the issues, a lot of the material issues that we'll have, money does come in very handy when we need things, when other people need things, when we want to be generous and provide aid and help. All those things are really important. So we know money itself, vitally important. Can't make it here in this country without money. And so people realize, hey, I need money. I've got to be able to buy things. I've got to be able to pay bills. I may not have the access to make as much money as I want or to earn as much money as I'd like. So why don't I just create more money? And so you have people who counterfeit money. They make false currency, and they try to use that currency like you would real money. These people are called forgers. They make fake money, and they make it look almost identical to real money. Then they can use that money to buy things. So what's the big deal 
about counterfeit money? What's the big deal about whether or not the money is authentic or whether it's not? It still buys you what you want, right? It seems like it wouldn't hurt anyone else. You're able to to get the items that are necessary. You might even be able to give items to other people, right? We can find good usages uh, for uh, good uses for counterfeit money. What's the big deal? Making counterfeit money, though, is like stealing. And in some ways, it's worse than stealing because everybody pays a price when other people use counterfeit money. Why? Counterfeit money reduces uh, the value of real money. How does it do that? Well, if more and more people are using fake money, then more and more people have the the means to buy a certain type of product, which means the demand goes up. And if the demand, this is an economics lesson, if the demand goes up, people raise the prices. If everybody wants your stuff, you can raise your price because you know they'll end up wanting to purchase it. So what it does is it inflates the value of things and it deflates the value of real money. And then eventually it will cause people to lose confidence in real money. That's why it's such a serious crime. It's a very serious crime in this country. If you're caught faking or counterfeiting money, you can be fined, you can be sent to prison for up to 15 years. In other countries, the punishment can be far more severe. In some places, uh, people can be executed for producing or smuggling counterfeit money. It's very serious, and this isn't new. The original job, you may not know this, but the original job of the Secret Service was not to protect the president. Back in 1865, we often assume because the Secret Service was formed during the Civil War, we think it must have been formed to protect Abraham Lincoln. No, the primary reason why the Secret Service was formed was to investigate counterfeit money. Because so much of the money in the U.S. was being counterfeited during that time, it was estimated that up to one third and even one half of all U.S. money in circulation was fake, was counterfeit. We've already talked about this. One of the ways that countries often would try to cripple an enemy uh, country was to flood their country with fake money. They'll use that as a part of war. As a matter of fact, during the Revolutionary War, the British flooded the American colonies with fake money. During the Civil War, the United States, in fighting against their domestic enemy, the Confederacy, they flooded the Confederacy with fake Confederate dollars. Why? To cripple its economy. And today, lots of people still try to counterfeit money. Every year, thousands of people are arrested. The Secret Service uh, recovers millions of fake U.S. money. The majority of U.S. dollars that are counterfeit are made from outside of this country. It's such a big deal, and we may not realize it, but this is this is the this is the deal. We see the danger, right? We can see the threat of counterfeit money. So then, how do we prevent it? How do we prevent it? Well, in our country, we use technology to make it super difficult uh, to 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 fake authentic money. We use things like special paper, we use special ink, we use multiple colors, we use holograms, we use watermarks, we use special printing techniques that are not easily faked. So so that's a a way that we can at least try to prevent it from happening, but it still happens. So then the next question is, how do we detect it? And this is crucial for us today. This is where we're going to go. How do we detect the counterfeit? Well, the best way to tell if a bill is counterfeit is not to go and study all the ways that counterfeit money gets made. 
The best way to be able to identify a counterfeit is to compare it to a genuine bill and look for the differences. That's it. All we have to know is what the authentic bill looks like and then compare it to anything else. Saves a lot of time, saves a lot of resources, saves a lot of research. All we need to know is what the authentic looks like. Compare it to the fake. So that means that for us, look at the clearness of the, of the portrait on the, on the dollars. Look at uh, the seals. Look at the border. Look at the serial numbers. Make sure the lines are clear. Make sure they aren't unbroken or blurry. Examine the paper. They should have tiny red and blue fibers embedded inside of it. They should have the distinctive feel of the way that real money feels. Compare how a real bill feels with respect to the suspect bill. Now, why should we care about this? Why am I talking about counterfeit money? Well, because the half-brother of Jesus, James, he kind of used the same principles uh, in detecting, the same principles we use to detect counterfeit money. He uses the same principles in detecting counterfeit faith, or more specifically, counterfeit wisdom. So in the same way that we deal with money, think of it this way. The best way to tell if wisdom is counterfeit is to compare it to godly wisdom and look for the differences. Compare it to godly wisdom and look for the differences. This wisdom that we think we have that might just be knowledge, let's compare what we think we, what we're calling wisdom. Let's compare, let's juxtapose that with God's wisdom and see where we land. This is why James' letter, as we've said before, is the most practical letter in the New Testament. It is kind of the wisdom book for the New Testament. It is like Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. And this portion of the chapter is no exception. Remember, James has already talked uh, to those who have been teachers, who have uh, claimed to be teachers, and James has, has challenged them. Be very careful. Many of you shouldn't even be teachers, right? And he starts walking through why. Pastor Jen walked us through that last week. Some of you shouldn't be teachers. And if you're going to be a teacher, remember, bridle your, your tongue. Watch the words that you use. Acknowledge that your words can tear down or build up. They can set a whole life on fire. They can give life or they can drain life. So he's made this point really well, well about words and about really the wisdom of your words. And he's bringing the point home by pointing out the characteristics of genuine godly currency, wisdom. That is the currency of the people of God, wisdom. He's also uh, comparing earthly foolish counterfeit wisdom to authentic godly wisdom. So as we read this, I want you to look for three markers. There are three, remember how we talked about counterfeit money, right? There are certain markers you have to look for in order to find out, uh, in order to use to compare against potential uh, counterfeit or fake money. So here are the markers we're looking for. This is what godly wisdom should look like. Here's what we should look for on the bill. That godly wisdom is exhibited through good conduct. Godly wisdom is differentiated from counterfeits. And godly wisdom is established by godly characteristics. Exhibited through good conduct, differentiated from counterfeits and established by godly characteristics. Let's read James 3, small little passage, verses 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. 
Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like that in this passage, remember, uh, James has been talking to these folks who have fancied themselves as teachers, and he's really challenging them. And this isn't just exclusively for teachers. This really is for anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. And so then he says, he, he gets to this point in verse 13, and I love the way that he poses this because he kind of asks this question almost rhetorically, but he almost wants to see how people will respond too. So he says, basically, how many of y'all are wise? We are really good at telling people what we're capable of. We often feel like society makes us be that, right? You have to be your own self-promoter. You have to be, if, if, if you don't uh, show confidence in yourself, which is true, then other people won't be confident in you. And so you've got to be able to show and demonstrate and, and show the people what it is that you have. Hey, I want you to know that I'm pretty wise. And so James asked them, okay, how many of y'all are wise? You almost imagine people kind of raising their hands, right? Well, I'm wise. I've, I, ask me a question. Drill me now. I, I'm ready for trivia. You want to know the Bible? I know it. You, 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 you want to know some of the finer points of theology? I know it. You want to know some things about church history? I know it. You want me to try to tell you the things that I think God thinks about? I can do that. I'm wise. And James looks at them and essentially here kind of says, put your hands down. You failed the test from Jump Street because you thought that you could prove your wisdom by telling me. But what does he say? Verse 13, he says, not only who among you is wise and understanding, he says, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. In other words, okay, how many of y'all are wise? Nope, put your hands down. You failed the test. Because really, you should have been like, we can't tell you how we're wise. We can only show you. Because wisdom is something that's observed. It's not something that's just communicated. Wisdom is something that is not uh, declared. Wisdom is something that is demonstrated. So here you see Paul, I mean, James is really making this point very clear. He says, godly wisdom isn't displayed by what you know. It's demonstrated by how you live. And that makes sense, right? James has already placed huge emphasis on the practical living out of our Christian faith. Remember, don't merely be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. So that first marker, the first marker of godly wisdom is not you boasting about what you think you know, you boasting about how much, how well you can recite really, really good godly principles. Ultimately, the mark, the first marker of godly wisdom is your conduct. How do you comport yourself? And is it in line with the heart of God. He says, by your good conduct. That word good is the word kalos. It's where we get the, 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 it's the root of the word calligraphy. Kalos and graphia or graphy, which is really uh, good in words, good writing, right? Not just words, but writing. It's this beautiful writing. There's a way in which our behavior should be something beautiful, should be something observably and objectively beautiful. Is your conduct 
beautiful. He's going to define what that beauty should look like in a minute. Then we get to the second marker of godly wisdom. Your wisdom should be differentiated from counterfeit wisdom, from fake wisdom. Remember, the bill that's authentic, compare it to all of the fakes, to all of the counterfeits. Your wisdom should be differentiated from counterfeits. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Ultimately, what he's saying is if we possess godly wisdom, we have nothing to brag about. We shouldn't feel like that this is something that we should want to to shout from a mountaintop and say, hey, everybody, look at how wise I am. Look at how godly I am. Look at how much I know. This is what foolish wisdom looks like. This is what counterfeit wisdom looks like. It's a wisdom that focuses on self. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that wisdom, that a wisdom that takes account of self is wrong, but a wisdom that focuses on self almost exclusively to the exclusion of others is a counterfeit wisdom. That's a false wisdom. Listen, self-love has its place. It's important that we love ourselves on the same, to the same degree that God loves us. We need to understand that and have a right uh, uh, understanding and, 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 a, and a right evaluation of ourselves, who we are, self-awareness. That's really important. It has its place. But when it becomes something that's rooted in selfish ambition, this kind of wisdom shows little to no regard for others. That's why James uses these words. That's why he says, uh, if you, uh, a little bit later, when he talks about selfish ambition, he starts describing how that's not just bad or useless, it's even demonic. The stuff that devils do is literally what that phrase in the Greek means. So this selfish ambition, what is selfish ambition? We, we are told to be ambitious. We are told to sell ourselves. And in many ways, the culture that we're in and the country that we're in, um, that is how you make, that's how you get good jobs. You have to sell yourself. You go into an interview, you've got to sell yourself. It'd be a bad interview if you walk in and just say, here's all the things I'm not good at. So, so we are, to some degree, we're supposed to be able to highlight things about ourselves that, that might endear ourselves to others for hire. But in God's economy, this actually should not be the case. We have to be very careful that our selfish ambition isn't our, or our self-love isn't selfish ambition, which means it's not typified by a willingness to be divisive or to marginalize or alienate others in the interest of one's own desire, a desire for power or a desire for prestige. So much of the way that the wisdom of our society and our world operates, it works this way. Business works this way. Politics works this way. And sadly, even religious spaces work this way. It's a selfishness that simply says, I really do not care how this affects others. I'm going to get what I want. I deserve that. I should have that. I don't have that. I will get that. And if you're in the way, that's bad on you. Can't help you. This is why he comes when he takes us to verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is, this is heavy, right? Because ultimately he's saying that this wisdom, even though this wisdom seems to make sense, this is conventional wisdom. It makes sense to uh, focus in a way that says, hey, I've got to get mine and it's your job to get yours. Survival of the fittest to a degree, right? I've got to do what I've got to do. I've got to get mine. If it affects you, that's just how the world works. I didn't invent the rules. 
Some love to use the animal kingdom as a way to justify this way of thinking. Well, animals live by the law of kill or be killed. Only the strongest survive. I was meant to be a survivor. You were meant to be the prey. That's just how it goes. Now, that seems like it makes sense. But God says that this type of wisdom is counterfeit because it's a wisdom that manifests an inward focus on self. It's not an outward and an upward focus. It's just an inward focus, which in turn makes it counterfeit and demonic. Again, that phrase means it's it's not only uh, bad, it's worthless, and it's the type of wisdom that devils use. Consider that, because that's the kind of wisdom that we beef up in a lot of our culture, in a lot of our music, a lot of our art, will oftentimes beef up the self, self, self. And really, God is saying, if you're focused on self, you likely are functioning in counterfeit wisdom. Which takes us, uh, when you really think about the, the implication of that, that takes us to a big question. Because a little bit later, or, or uh, as we go further, he says uh, in verse 15, such wisdom does not come from above, it's earthly, uh, unspiritual, and demonic. Then verse 16, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So this isn't just him waxing eloquent about abstract things. Hey, don't have that kind of attitude. That's not good. Hey, that kind of thinking isn't great. He's telling you why. It's consequential. Because here's what happens. Selfish ambition, right? This idea of, and this is such a big one, uh, this idea of selfish ambition and envy is the source of every single form of disorder and evil practice. Anything we see that's evil, anything that we see basically that's sin, is rooted in envy or selfish ambition. Think about that. This is hard as American rugged individualist Christians, right? This is why Christian nationalism is not consistent with God's wisdom ethic, right? Because we're not supposed to have a mindset that says, me first. Uh, my, my rights first. A person with God's wisdom is always willing to yield out of a deference and respect for others, not a willing to clamp down, hold, and conserve what it is that I think is mine at the expense of others. This is a paradigm shift from the way that we've been taught, even in some of our churches. Now, it's interesting because then this is when he starts to walk through what this means. But think closely about this. How does envy and selfish ambition do this for us, right? How does envy and selfish ambition create uh, or serve as the foundation for so many horrible things? Well, every sin is rooted in self-worship. I love myself so much and I believe I deserve a certain thing so much. If I see something that someone else has that I think I should have, I envy that and I'm going to get that. How, by whatever means necessary. I'm going to ensure by my own selfish ambition, which means there's a zeal that I will use to achieve what it is that I feel like is coming to me, things that I believe I deserve. And so because of that, uh, I'm immediately going to go, I don't care who it affects in order for me to get this. I don't care how it impacts others. I'm going to do what I have to do to get mine. So every murder, every lie, every violation, every moment of broken trust, every moment of broken fidelity is rooted in selfish ambition and envy, and sometimes, and oftentimes, both. 
which now takes us to this third marker. The third marker of godly wisdom is is a, is a, is a conduct or a life or a wisdom that is established by godly characteristics. Verse 17, uh, James walks us through these characteristics. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. When he says first pure, this isn't about a, a linear sequence, right? Make sure this is there, then this happens, then this happens. This all should be happening at one time. When he says first, he's using that in terms of preeminence. This is the, the most important thing. This is the thing that should be happening on a deep level. This is the heart stuff. It should be pure. It should be something that is authentic. That means your motivations, your intentions should be right. It's important that you're, a lot of times when we can see what the intentions of a person, uh, what they are, it helps us see some of the, some of the light, some of the outcomes differently. It doesn't mean the impacts are any less impactful, but it, when it's time to get to the place of reconciliation and both parties are playing their roles, when you get to see where the intentions are, you can see if it came from a pure place. It's important that our actions and what we do comes from a true, pure place. Is it coming from a self-focused, self-defensive, self-protected, self-ambitious place? Or is it coming from an outward, upward focus? If it is, that's the purity of heart. He says, peace-loving. This is more than just, uh, I love not having conflict. That's not peace-loving, right? We've talked about that before. The difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. What peace-loving means is, I love to see things thoroughly and substantively resolved. I love to see the things that could cause real breakdown in relationship. I love to see those things removed. I love to see holistic shalom. I love to see not just uh, people who are getting along, but I love to see the people who fail to get along. I love to see genuine reconciliation happen. That's what it means to be peace loving, not even just peace tolerating, peace loving. You work hard for anything you love. And so if you love peace, then you work for peace, which takes us to this third marker or this third characteristic, gentle. What does it mean to be gentle? Well, one part of being gentle is to ensure that even uh, if I don't like what a person is doing, or maybe even if the person is wrong, how do I communicate that? That goes back to what we talked about last week, right? The words that we use. Gentle doesn't always mean agreeing with what a person said, but there's a gentleness that needs to be there. There's a, we're not coming in with this acerbic attitude. We're not coming in, we're not gonna use words that can cut people to the quick, that can cut people, or I should say, cut people down before they can get to these deeper places, right? We don't use words that are uh, intentionally combative. Now, sometimes saying hard truths may cut and hurt. That's different. But the way we say the hard truths matters as well. People can tell, let's just be honest. You can tell if somebody meant to be, uh, meant to say a thing with gentleness versus uh, doing it in an acerbic way. We can tell. You can see, you can get, and this gets to like intent and purity of heart. Yet again, these things kind of lie in together, which really it ties into this next word, uh, compliant. 
Now that could hit different, right? Because compliant doesn't mean, let me just go along with whatever people say. That's not what compliant means. Compliant does not mean, uh, in order for me to have God's wisdom, I have to be a pushover. In order to have God's wisdom, I need to just go with whatever the crowd or whatever the people are saying, because I want to keep them happy. Let me be a people pleaser. That's not what compliance here means. What this word compliant means is uh, the phrase uh, literally means willing to yield. Willing to yield. Remember what I just said about American rugged individualism? This does not jive well with the way we are raised. This doesn't connect well with the way that we function, right? If people look like they're meek or compliant, they look weak. And we're told people only respect people who look strong. And sometimes our definition of strength is mired in earthly wisdom and not godly wisdom. If your definition of strength does not include meekness and a willing to yield, then your definition of strong is an earthly one. It's a counterfeit one, and it's even a demonic one. That's not God's wisdom. So what does it mean to be, to be willing to yield? Willing to yield. Again, doesn't mean just being walked over. Doesn't mean just giving in to any argument. But a willing to yield is this, this idea that says, I'm not going to have a mindset that says uh, me uh, first. I'm not going to have a mindset that says, however I see this, it's already going to be right, regardless of what you say to me. A person with God's wisdom is always willing to yield out of deference and respect for other people. Now, listen, this doesn't mean we yield for something false, that we yield for something harmful, that we yield for something sinful. But for things that are not essential, why not yield? It doesn't mean even agree, but why not just kind of concede that? Hey, that's fine. That's where you are. That's great without judgment or without little side comments and side swipes and side eyes, but just literally just saying, hey, that's fine. We, we don't have to keep fighting there. How about this? Here's a better way to think about willing to yield. What's the mindset? What's your mindset in the midst of a disagreement? How are you thinking when you're getting ready to walk into a conversation in which you know a massive disagreement will ensue? What is your heart posture when you know there's going to be a topic that causes conflict or disagreement? Listen, it's one thing to know your mind. It's another thing to already have your mind made up. That's the difference, right? That's what it means to be willing to yield. If you have your mind made up before you ever enter a conversation with a smug, self-assured, I know I'm right, even if you are right, you'll never be in a position to learn anything. You can't just walk into anything and go, you know what? I don't even say what you want. Go ahead, say it. Even though your mind is already made up, there's nothing you can say that's going to change my mind, but I'll look like I'm listening by just letting you talk. That's not a willingness to yield, which means that's not God's wisdom. It's earthly wisdom. You might even say, um, you know, I'm, I'm willing to have my mind changed. I, I'll listen to you if you show me evidence that I should change my mind. The problem is you've already determined that there is no evidence that would ever change your mind. So it's just lip service. It's just pretentious, which is actually the last thing that's brought up. You're just faking. You're just stunting for everybody else. I'm going to look like I'm meek and I'm going to look like I'm yielding. By the way, 
quietness, being silent, doesn't necessarily mean yielding because it's an internal thing. So you can silently just go, I can't wait for you to be done talking because I already know that I'm right. You're wasting my time and yours, but I want to look like I'm yielding. So continue. That's not God's wisdom. That's, that's false wisdom. That's counterfeit wisdom. Willing to yield means you humble yourself and you're teachable and you're willing to learn something. This isn't just a lecture to make us feel bad. You do realize that the primary way that we grow isn't just through doing all the things right. We grow when we're challenged by the things that are not right. When we're challenged by the things that we think are right and we are having to be confronted with the uncompromising truth of God's word and God's wisdom and go, wow, I had that wrong. Wow, I really was convinced that I was really strong. The the, the place that we stop growing, the place where our development is most arrested is the place at which we stop growing, period. It's the place at which we refuse to be molded. We refuse to be scolded. We refuse to be changed. So we're stuck there. That's it. That's the plateau. You can't go any further. You will not grow any further if your mindset is always fixed and not ready to grow. Which is why these last few things come up huge, right? Because that the next thing he says is we need to be full of mercy. But how is it possible to be full of mercy if you've never been willing to yield? That means you've never even shown, you don't show mercy if you don't have humility first. You don't. The song that we just had, act justly, walk humbly, love mercy, all of those things come together. You will never be full of mercy if you don't know what it is to show mercy. And you can't know what it is to show mercy if you haven't been overwhelmed by by the mercy of God. If you're overwhelmed by the mercy of God, then it really won't matter whether or not the person on the other end deserves your mercy because you're reminded that you never deserved God's. So when you get to that place, you're like, man, I, I, God showed me mercy and I know me. I know that I really didn't deserve mercy there, but God has shown it to me and he continues to show it to me. And so really, this isn't even about uh, a merit-based form of mercy that says, did that person deserve my mercy? great, then I'll give it to him. That's not being full of mercy. That's really being full of earthly wisdom. And we're calling it mercy. But a true person who demonstrates, who exhibits these characteristics, we, and it's not, it's hard, definitely not perfect. And it's something we have to keep growing in, but we will be full of it. Opportunities to show real mercy should be something that people just kind of see in us. Again, not being walked over, not saying things that aren't true, still holding on what is true and what is right. But what does it mean to engage mercifully? If Listen, a lot of times if we've been hurt by someone and a person is trying to engage honestly with purity of heart, with a desire to really make peace, with gentleness, with also this willingness to yield wherever they've been wrong, and we're still just holding on to our pain and our frustration, that can be a drug. It often is. I just want to remain angry. I want to remain bitter. Most of us, sometimes we don't even realize how addicted we are to it because it gives us a sense of energy, right? Holding on to uh, pain. We're not saying that we're ever completely healed and there's always a whole lot of things we need to do to walk and learn how to cope because sometimes this stuff doesn't go away. But what? how do we respond to that pain is what makes us bitter. How do we respond to that? Are we willing to show mercy when people in good faith are trying to uh, engage us well? 
Are we willing to, to have this willingness to open up and go, if this is where you are and you're coming out of this place of, of purity of heart and you genuinely want to make peace and you genuinely are coming in from a gentle place and you also are willing to yield, this is, the, this is what reconciliation has to look like for us. And even if they're not, how we engage with them still matters. Even if folks are not at a place where they really want to reconcile, how we engage with them still matters. Now, boundaries need to be set. Yes. Need to be very careful about how we engage. Sure. Do we open ourselves up to be hurt? Do we open ourselves up to be vulnerable? Not necessarily. That's not what this says. But ultimately, showing mercy in the way that we engage, showing grace, showing gentleness, still showing love, that's something that should be true. Which is why this sixth thing, full of good fruits, what it means for our lives to be fruitful. You see, full of mercy. You see how this stuff all lines together? If you are willing to yield, there's a humility that's already there. Because the humility is there, you can't help but to to realize just how merciful God's been to you, which means you can't help but to disseminate mercy out as a regular rhythm of life. And because you are doing that, you are full of mercy. Guess what? This is the kind of good fruit that should be true of those who are characterized by God's wisdom. This is what makes us real peacemakers. And so, so when you think through like how, what does it mean that if if these are the ways that I'm going to function and this is the kind of wisdom I'm going to live in, that I'm never going to back off of this. I'm going to be unwavering. It's not unwavering in, I will not waver in what I believe and what I think. We say that a lot. And sometimes, a lot of times it's true. Certain things that are objectively true that will never change. We got to make sure we know what those things are. But a lot of things are things that we should be willing to yield and willing to learn because there's a lot of things that's not set in stone. And sometimes we typically, we, for whatever reason, we highlight and we praise people who just stick to their guns and stick to what it is they said and stick to what they believe. You know what that means? That means we stick, we love people and we praise people that never grow. We love to make fun. That person flip-flopped. They said this one time, now they're saying this. You don't even know what you're saying anymore. You're double-minded. That's not what that means. The truth of the matter is when you know better, you do better. When you know more, you say things differently. When you, and that is when wisdom happens. It's not just knowing more. The knowing more is one thing. The doing differently is the wisdom. And so you can't ever be a person that's like, I am who I am and that's just how I, that's, that's how I'm wired. That's the excuse we love to use. This is just who I was made to be. I'm an ENFP. I'm a four on the Enneagram. I'm giving you all my business, y'all, because this is me. And this is just how I'm wired. This is just who I am. You got to deal with that. You got to love me for me. You know what that is? That's saying, sorry, y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm unwavering in this way. I'm not really willing to yield on these areas of my life. That's not what this unwavering means, right? This, what unwavering means is I will never come off of doing these other aforementioned things. I will, I will never waver from being pure, from being peace-loving, from being gentle, from being compliant, from being full of mercy, from being full of good fruits. This is, it doesn't mean I won't fall, but I will always remain committed to this, which means when I don't do this and I'm called out or that thing is exposed in me, I will be humble, willing to yield and repent. Ultimately, all of this is the life of faith and repentance. I'm unwavering in that I'm committed to living a life of faithful wisdom and repenting every time I fall. This is the life of a peacemaker. And so all of the being full of mercy and good fruits and unwavering, that's how you ensure that you are a person who lives without pretense. You're not pretending to be wise. 
Most of us feel the pressure to have to pretend to be wise. Be in a room with a bunch of people. Sometimes people feel the pressure to have to, let me say something so that they know I know something about this. Let me say something so that they can see me as yet another person that's wise here. That's not something we should ever have to do. You don't have to fake being wise. If you are committed to these things and there is no pretension there, you're like, all I want to do is, is, is embody this kind of wisdom. What did we learn in James 1 in the beginning? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he will give it to you liberally. Knowledge you can go and get. Wisdom is something we have to ask for. Wisdom is something we have to plead with God for. And to be able to have his wisdom is something very different. This is what makes us at the very end when he says in verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the work of, this is the work of what it means to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? All of this stuff is what it means to be a peacemaker. So ultimately, if you are not a peacemaker, you're not wise. You might know a lot. You might be incredibly knowledgeable, but that does not make us wise. And why does that matter? Because what it means to, to embody the peace of God, what it means to live that out, that is a huge testament to the God that is reconciling us, to the God that loves us, to the God that shows us mercy. If I were to tell you that there is an apple tree outside of your house, if I were to say, just go and look out the, out the window, you can see it. What would you look for to prove that? Super simple question. You wouldn't look at the leaves. You wouldn't look at the branches. You wouldn't look at the bark. You would look at the fruit. You would look to see, are there apples there? If there are real apples there, yep, he's right. That's an apple tree. And it's a living apple tree. What happens if I looked out there and I saw uh, something different, other, something other than apples coming out there? It's a tree. It's something, but it's not an apple tree. There's other things growing on there that's not apples. Or what happens if I look out there and I see it's a tree and it looks like apples. Let me go out and, look and, and, and get a closer look. And I get there and the apple's starting to look a little rotten and you start realizing, oh, oh, this apple didn't really grow on this tree. Somebody stapled it to the tree. That's pretense, fruit staplers. We say something thinking it makes us be a thing and it's really not. But the true fruit is really this. The way people know, the way that God knows, when, when J- the way that James wants this question answered isn't, hey, I can tell you that I'm wise. You ask us how many of us are wise. I'm wise, here's what I know. No, just look at my fruit. Look at the fruit. Here are the apples on my tree. Here are the apples on my branches. This is the fruit of God. What is the fruit? My conduct is good. My life can be differentiated from counterfeit wisdom. And, I, and prayerfully, my life, the way that I function is established by these godly characteristics. God really wants to be able to see us as authentic currency, and he empowers us to do so. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his heart. That is the root so that the fruit can be displayed. May we be a people who are so sold out and jealous for God's glory that we say it's not even about my ambition. It's not about me trying to be something else. It's not about me wanting things in order for me to have power and prestige. It's about truly making God's name famous and living that out in my life, displaying that in my family, displaying that in my community, displaying that throughout the world. What does it mean to be a person that is pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy? What does it mean to be full of good fruit? 
What does it mean to be a true peacemaker? Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. Because God has shown you mercy, you can now show mercy to others. May we be a people that is characterized by God's wisdom and not earthly, worthless, counterfeit wisdom. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your wisdom. God, we have any, man, any number of ways to define wisdom. We have any number of ways to go and Google things and find ways to increase our knowledge. Lord, may we not be guilty of confusing the two. Lord, we want knowledge, but you tell us in your word and all of our knowledge to get understanding. So Lord, help us to understand the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And then help us to understand the difference between true godly wisdom and counterfeit devilish wisdom. God, help us to see the damage that wisdom causes. God, that that kind of wisdom causes. God, I pray that we would not be guilty of the same things that happen with counterfeit money. I pray that our false wisdom, if that's true of us, would not go out in such a way so as to make people have less faith in the real thing. God, I pray that we would not be the cause of people believing that true godly wisdom must must not exist. Lord, I pray that even in the way that we live, we would not have a life that tells a lie on who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would give us mercy, that you would convict us and and show us the ways in which we continue to grow. I pray that we would be willing to yield to you, that we would yield to your spirit and yield to your wisdom. Lord, crush all the things in my own mind, in my own heart, crush the things in our minds and our hearts that we've held on as wisdom when really it's just selfish ambition, envy, and we have deceived ourselves. God, I pray that you would make much of yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction of God and listen again to these words as you hear how our Savior, how our God shows that kind of mercy to us and what he does to sustain us even when we fall. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. Be fruitful. God bless. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.